Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. It is Tuesday, May 4th. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for our show today. For those of you who got pounded, and I mean pounded, by the uh, heavy thunderstorms in some locations uh, that you may have been in, tornadoes, yesterday, I know it was a difficult day for a great many people. Uh, Here where I live, we were under a tornado warning for some time. And let me tell you, there's nothing, I think, more disconcerting than watching a weather person on TV literally mention your street as a place where a tornado uh, might hit. And I am far from alone in having dealt with that yesterday. So I hope you all got through it as well as possible. And that today, although we're expecting more thunderstorms, things calm down. You'll hear more about that on our newscast as we go through the day. Lots to talk about on Political Rewind today. I'm very happy that I'm joined, as I always am, on Tuesdays by my partner from the AJC, senior AJC reporter, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, did you, uh, you were in the middle of it, I think, in your neighborhood, too, for a while. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't get live TV, but I was looking on, on Twitter and just seeing some of the images from, you know, downtown Atlanta where it looked like there was a tornado that touched down. It was kind of terrifying to be sitting there only a few miles away, but nothing yeah. too bad happened in my neighborhood, which was good. Good, good, good. Well, thank you for being here today. Uh, we're also joined today once again by the president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, one of the largest online resources for Hispanics across the United States. Renee Alegria, how are you today, Renee? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm going to say my obligatory uh, May the 4th be with you uh, to everybody because I'm a a Star Wars geek at heart, and there you go. Are you? So, Renee, you are way too young to have remembered when Star Wars was first released in movie theaters. You must have caught up to that whole franchise a little later. No, I was, uh, I mean, I didn't attend the premiere in 1977, no. But uh, let's just say that I did attend uh, Empire Strikes Back in the theater and and obviously (laughs) grew up with it all like everybody else did. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me about May 4th. Um, Tomorrow, let me get uh, started right away with news about out of the Secretary of State's office. Over the last five years, uh, essentially, there has been enormous controversy about the way the Republican Secretary of State's office has been handling uh, cancellations of voter registrations based on criteria established by the state but questioned by voting rights groups. I think, Tamar, it's interesting that Georgia election officials uh, have already, they've they've already put out a projection for the number of uh, registrations they plan to cancel, and it is far fewer than we've seen in past years. They say about 113,000 compared to a record of 534,000 back in 2017, and then in 2019, I think, 287,000. I guess people and people have their fingers crossed that this time the process may be neutral, not quite as partisan as Democrats have contended it's been. 
I don't know if anything the Secretary of State's office does when it comes to voting is considered neutral these days, especially given <laughs> right. how much he's been in the news. Um, right. But that said, um, about 10% of the number you mentioned, about 113, are, are people who have died. And that's kind of the first round of voters. They're going to be kind of cleaning, you know, scrubbing off the rolls. Um, then they get to about 100,000 voters who haven't participated in elections in about nine years. And the reason that I think some people... Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like the number is going to be as high is, is because, first of all, um, so many people voted in last year's November elections or in the runoff that I think um, fewer people are inactive compared to, to past years. It was just so hard to get away from the, you know, Donald Trump, Joe Biden race and obviously the, the Senate runoffs. Um, and then you'd also talk to, to advocates of, of kind of scrubbing the rolls and they say, well, we did such a good job the first two rounds in 2017 and 2019 that we were able to scrub away folks who had moved away um, or who were inactive. Of course, you have Democrats who still criticize the fact that, um, you know, the Secretary of State's office feels the need to do that as well and that there still are people who do live in Georgia who are, um, you know, who should not be removed from the rolls if, if they are alive and, um, you know, still, still kicking. So I don't think it'll ever be uncontroversial. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, Renee, that half million number from 2017 was certainly one of the factors that led to the uh, mobilization that Stacey Abrams and her folks created, Fair Fight Action, uh, which has been active ever since in uh, watching carefully and being critical of how the state is handling elections, everything from registration to how we're voting and, and the like. So it did have a huge pushback from Democrats that resonates to this day. Right. Listen, I, I, I mean, as Tamar said, I think, you know, we're not surprised by something like this. Um, the optics are obviously bad, but in comparison to what's happening right now in state legislatures all over the country, um, it does seem like small potatoes, you know, it yet is another uh, piece of wood in the fire to light uh, organizations like Stacey Abrams is to really galvanize and get involved. I, um, I mean, I, I do think that these obviously will all have a consequence. Um, the consequence for the Republican Party is how, uh, how will it fuel the engagement of Democrats, of young Democrats, of Democrats that want to, you know, make sure there are fair and free elections across the state. Only time will tell with that. But it's, you know, again, you, you, you look at what's happening in, in Arizona, uh, modeled after what had just happened in Georgia. It's going to happen in Texas. It's, you know, I mean, it's rolling all across the country. So uh, the, next, uh, the next election cycle is going to be one where we're going to see what all of this then does when rubber hits the road. Um, it is important to point out, Tamar, that there are only nine states in the country right now that have so-called use-it-or-lose-it rules attached to registration, Georgia being one of them. This notion that uh, after nine years, you can be kicked off the roll simply for not voting is con very controversial among many people. I mean, and, and the, the argument is one of my rights is to not vote in a number of elections if I feel that it, it, it's, um, it, I just don't want to uh, 
uh, vote for given candidates in the election. I'm not suggesting that's great. I mean, it seems to me our responsibility is to vote, but you, you know, the question is whether you should be kicked off the rolls for that. And you talk to Republicans and they say, look, I mean, you have nine years uh, before you get scrubbed off the rolls. That's that's plenty of time. You know, we're going to mail you something in the, you know, a letter and you have to respond. You know, they, they claim that they're giving you a lot of chances to, to kind of show yourself and that, um, you know, you you want to participate and that um, nine years is a very reasonable time frame. You, you talk to Democratic critics, of course, and they say, you know, the people who are disproportionately affected by stuff like this are black and brown voters. Um, and that there are plenty of situations, you know, and, and we saw some of them, especially in the lead up to the runoff last year, where there were people who were getting um, scrubbed from the rolls who were indeed alive. You know, there, I remember a story that one of the TV stations did about an old lady who, who was still alive, still planning to vote. And there was just a, a big misunderstanding. Um, and so, of course, this is going to provide fuel to the fire to, to both sides. Um, one of the things I'm going to be the most interested in seeing, you know, Renee mentioned, we're, we're really going to see over the next two years how much of an impact this is going to have. Um, one of the new changes in the voting law, which I actually was not aware of until I read my colleague's story, um, was that it requires Georgia to enter into a, I guess, coalition of states that share their voter information. It's an electronic registration kind of hub where it allows states to take a peek. You know, maybe there's a voter in Georgia who hasn't been responding to some of the letters that the Secretary of State's office was sending to ask, hey, are you still you know, uh, active voter. Well, you can check the, the database and see, oh, they looks like they moved to South Carolina or Virginia or wherever. And I will be very interested to see the impact of something like that. Yeah, we'll watch that. That you're, I'm glad you pointed it out. It is a 30-state organization. They call it ERIC for short, and you're right. It is an electronic uh, database. So we will watch how this unfolds. And uh, the problem, Renee, is, as, as Tamar points out, uh, it would be lovely if we could say that these decisions were being made for uh, transparent, uh, practical reasons. But certainly ever since the 2020 election and Republican uh, casting doubt on whether the election was legitimate, at every time we talk about an election story, it, that cloud hovers over it. Are they, you know, are they in fact going to cancel registrations for partisan advantage? Well, I, you know, just just really quick, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, the use it or use it uh, law, I, you know, I mean, we're talking about voting. We're talking about the, a fundamental right that is an American citizen, not a gym membership that lapsed because you decided to not go to the gym, not a Netflix membership that you just decided that you weren't using anymore. Um, you, you make those parallels and it becomes even more absurd uh, that the law is even into, in effect with nine states that it is. Renee Alegria, you get the last word in this segment. We are continuing this week our spring pledge drive. Only twice a year do we come to you and ask you to support the work that we're doing at Political Rewind. It's your dollars that allow for us to have a team like Sam Burmis Dawes, Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger, bringing you Political Rewind every day, a show that you tell us means a lot to you, which we're very grateful to hear you say. But we'd like to ask you to continue supporting us or start supporting us. And here's how you can do it. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC Senior Reporter Tamar Hallerman, Mundo Hispanico Digitals, uh, President and CEO Renee Alegria join us for Political Rewind today. Uh, Tamar, before we uh, move into a conversation, which I'd love to have with you all about what's happening on the immigration front, a quick uh, breaking news story. Um, early this morning, B. Wynn, state representative, Democrat, uh, state rep- Democratic state representative announced she is, as many people expected, going to run for secretary of state and hope that uh, she will uh, challenge whether it's Brad Raffensperger, Jody Heiss, or the other Republicans who are already uh, competing to deny Brad Raffensperger the chance to be the nominee. Uh, B. Wynn will join that race. And we don't know. I think she's hoping to clear the field by announcing early and tomorrow, the one thing to say about B. Wynn is that for a young representative who has um, just really kind of recent history in the legislature, she's made quite an impact. She is beginning to establish herself as a leader. Whether she can win a statewide race or not is another story altogether. Yeah, she's only been in the legislature a few years. She replaced um, Stacey Abrams when she stepped down to run for um, to run for governor. She represents an uh, eastern Atlanta district. Um, that includes places like Kirkwood. And you're right, she has made a, a name for herself as a pretty vocal advocate for things like voting rights, kind of following in Stacey Abrams' footsteps. This wasn't a surprise at all that she's going to win, um, but she certainly is going to be a really um, high profile, or sorry, the, not a surprise that she's going to run, sorry. Um, but she certainly yeah. is going to be a really high profile person. And th- this certainly puts Brad Raffensperger in an even tougher spot in which he's already in. You know, not only is he facing challenges on his right, from people like Jody Heiss, but he's also now going to be criticized on the left. And I think whereas there, there were some Democrats who, in the heat of the election season, were appreciative of what Brad Raffensperger is doing, I think Bean wins entry into this race, she's going to pull away any Democrats who I think would have ever thought to support Brad Raffensperger. And so it's, it's even harder for him now um, at this point. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what, how aggressively she goes after him early or whether she lets... Um, the primary kind of play itself out, let Jody Heiss do it for her, um, but not a surprise at all, and um, obviously a frequent guest on this show as well. Yeah, and, you know, the minute somebody declares for office, we basically take a step back from them because we feel it's inappropriate to have an active candidate on the show, which is too bad. We've enjoyed her participation, just like Jen Jordan is now, you know, running for AG. She's going to, we're gonna, taking a step back from having her on the show. I hate to lose all these great panelists to elective office, but they have to make their decisions about what they want and think is in the best interest of themselves and the state. Um, all right, Renee, uh, your readers on Mundo Hispanico Digital are obviously watch, they watch immigration uh, trends very, very closely. And immigration has been in the headlines in a big, big way, really since uh, President Biden took office. And, and I, you'll correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that given the surge of undocumented immigrants trying to come across the border, especially children 
who have been for at least temporarily housed in less than ideal um, uh, uh, situations. If the Biden administration has had a bad start on this and doesn't seem to have found its footing even yet. Am I misstating that? No, 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 you're absolutely correct. I mean, look, Biden inherited an immigration mess from the previous administration, which inherited an immigration mess from the previous administration, which inherited an immigrant. I mean, it goes, this goes way back, right? This is not just, okay, what happened after January 6th, and then boom, we have an immigration issue. Um, what Biden has not done effectively is, is communicate the the message a plan he didn't really address uh immigration or a plan during his speech last week and i think that 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 really uh riled some feathers out there primarily in the border states arizona um you, you saw senator mark kelly of arizona newly elected astronaut um say hey we think biden's doing a great job but he didn't say anything about having a plan for immigration which is very important to his constituency across across the border really so yes uh he's not doing the best job but it does seem that the message has been taken um you you do see a drop in uh in the stats of immigrant children you see them promoting very heavily the reunification of the four families this week um which you know, is just a marker and an example of hopefully what they're going to be doing uh, going forward. Uh, but this is not a new issue, and it will continue to be a wedge issue. Um, and what's unfortunate is that it is at the sacrifice of the immigrants coming to this country, the immigrants that are already in this country, watching it play out in political theater and in the media. And that's what's unfortunate. That's where, where our users um, look to us to kind of disseminate what's going on and how, how the news can directly affect them, you know? Uh, so it's, it's I, I think that there's going to be major changes this year, it looks like with what Biden has already put on the table, he's a he's a he's proved to be a big thinker. Is he going to do and be able to push through what no president has been able to do since, say, Ronald Reagan in '86 when he, you know, legalized? Uh, I believe it was six million undocumented immigrants. Um, we don't know. We'll watch it play out. But yes, it's. Uh, it's a problem that they definitely need to uh, to to fix. Yeah, tomorrow uh, the president does have an immigration plan that Congress uh, has so far not taken up that that would put uh, uh, some immigrants, a, gr a great number of them, on track uh, to be here legally and in some cases become citizens. But in the meantime, uh, Republicans even here in Georgia, are starting to take advantage of the problems the Biden administration is facing. Uh, as you know, Governor Kemp went to the border last Friday, uh, met with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. They toured a little stretch of the border, and Governor Kemp uh, tweeted out the fact that if Kamala Harris, if Vice President Harris won't come to the border, I'm here. And of course, uh, President Biden conspicuously put Harris in charge of overseeing the immigration situation. But you can imagine Republicans will be able to take advantage of this in upcoming campaigns. 
It's a huge initial opening for Republicans, especially because you think about the first couple things that Joe Biden has been able to do in his presidency. You know, the COVID relief bill, sending checks to um, lots of needy Americans, getting more aid to businesses. Those are popular things. That was harder to attack. Even infrastructure, which, you know, they attack the size of, of President Biden's proposal, still people want to fix roads and bridges. This is kind of the one area where, where President Biden has gotten a lot of criticism, even within his own party. Um, you know, initially not being willing to say that this is a crisis at the border, um, you know, then getting attacked about the refugee cap and the numbers of, of refugees being let in. And you look at polling on this issue and Biden is polling really badly right now. Uh, the Pew Research Center just did a poll of, of Americans and it found that about two thirds of, of the country right now says that you know, says that Joe Biden is not doing a good job right now when it comes to handling the crisis at the border. And that includes a majority of Democrats, some 56 percent. So, of course, this is an opening for Republicans, especially when, you know, the, the party is fractured on so many other issues when it comes to the legacy of Donald Trump. But this is one that that really does unite Republicans, um, kind of taking, you know, taking the debate out of what Renee said, the lives of a lot of these undocumented people who are living in the United States. Politically, this is a, a big opportunity for Republicans to hit Biden where it hurts. A very conspicuous example of the dissonance between the president and some in his own party uh, comes uh, just last week. Uh, the president gave an interview to Craig Melvin on NBC's Today show and he said that, uh, he said, quote, we've now gotten control. It's talking about the children, particularly unaccompanied crossing the border. Uh, two days later on Fox News on Sunday, Democratic Representative uh, Henry Quaylar uh, said he's wrong. It is not under control in, in Texas. We still have terrible uh, problems here. So there's that, Renee. But then let's add one more element where the president clearly stumbled and that was he initially announced that he was going to maintain refugee uh, numbers, the number of refugees that would be admitted to the United States this year, at the same level that Donald Trump had kept them. And that really led to outrage. And Biden had to withdraw from that very quickly. Yeah, I, I think, look, during, during uh, the previous administration, we saw horrific images of kids in cages. We saw this, you know, problem at the border escalate into the crisis. We now see it now. Um, what, what, what I think Democrats, the expectations that they have for Biden to just snap his fingers and fix it are so absurdly high that nothing that he does to help will appease all of the Democrats in, in this in this regard. Um, I, I do I do think that again there is a lot of political theater going on and we can't forget that the lives of the immigrants that comprise the working labor pool of this country are directly affected. Uh, wait, but Renee, I want to get get one thing from you, and then tomorrow I know you want to join in, and we'll do that after the break. R Renee, um, but the fact is that Biden completely stumbled on keeping the number of refugees down without regard to any other calculations. He immediately, after the criticism, raised the number to 65-plus thousand. You would have thought that's something that a smart administration could have anticipated. Yeah, no, listen, I, I there's— 
you know, there's nothing to be said. He made a mistake, you know, he, he corrected it. Uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. We'll see what the levels that he has with, with that number. Are they going to go up? All right. We've got to get to another pledge break. I know tomorrow you want to weigh in on this, and it's a, a topic I want to continue on the other side of our break, but we've got to turn us uh, turn our show over to uh, the folks who can tell you how you can become a supporter of GPB Radio. Tamar Hellerman, I know you wanted to get involved in this uh, conversation about uh, how the Biden administration is dealing with uh, immigration, how people like Governor Kemp are on the Republican side or taking advantage of it to push back. So give us your thoughts. Sure. I wanted to kind of look forward ahead a, a little bit at what President Biden actually can or cannot do. I know he's gotten a lot of criticism from folks who live in border states, from progressives, progressives especially, who wanted to see kind of a, a giant vision from the president on immigration reform in his speech to Congress last week. And this is just an issue that's become so poisoned in the partisan arena that, that it's just impossible to really cut a deal or just almost or close enough to impossible at this point. And so his options are really limited in terms of what he can do. And really, the, the president's going to be limited to spending bills, the annual government spending process. So this is what we've seen, kind of the big shutdown showdowns um, over the, you know, the last couple of years with President Obama, then with Trump, um, where we did see shutdowns or near shutdowns in terms of funding DHS, um, how much money to give to border security, how much money for uh, for building the wall on the southern border. And so that's where the next fight is going to be. Um, it's not going to be over broad principles and, you know, giant changes to the system. It's going to be more kind of meat and potatoes. You know, this is how much money we want to give to border security, to foreign aid, to places like Central America. And I think that's where this, the discussion is going to be headed in the next couple of months. You know, um, meanwhile, Renee, there have been a, a, a number of really, I think, fascinating stories about where Hispanic voters stand in terms of what is assumed to be their traditional loyalty to the Democratic Party. Um, and and uh, the, the um, New York Times yesterday published a fascinating story about Hispanic voters in South Texas where there's a real, where they, they um, led by Hispanic women, uh, they voted in new record numbers for Donald Trump in 2020 and ca are continuing down there to organize the Hispanic communities uh, to uh, support Republicans. This is uh, an interesting switch from what we traditionally think of, and I think it's different from how the Hispanic community voted in the 2020 election here. Yeah, look, it, it, well, first of all, it's no surprise whatsoever to me that Latinas are driving civic involvement, um, whether it be South Texas or anywhere else in the country. Latinas, Latina moms, they make decisions in the home, um, economic decisions. They keep everyone safe and on track. Their organizing is is a logical next step of being engaged. Um, that said, I do think that there, the root of this is something even more broad. Um, look, Hispanics do not vote as a monolith 
or you know you'll you'll find different hispanics of different countries of origin different generation different parts of the country etc each carving their own path i think what you're seeing right now in south texas is more of a marker of the rapidity of the cultural difference between rural and urban voters that's at the root of what's happening in the rio grande valley um latinos in south texas i mean you know they like their guns, their Bibles. They believe in strong law enforcement. They strongly oppose abortion. Um, they still believe in the American dream, you know? And, and that's kind of the opposite of what you're seeing in the more urban areas where Latinos are driving record numbers of engagement. You see Austin, Houston, Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix, the Latino voters in Phoenix were able to turn Maricopa County staunchly red, blue in the last election. You see it in Vegas, in El Paso, Tucson, Albuquerque. You can go down the list of these cities where in which Latinos are driving blue. So you're not going to get away from this rural versus urban uh, when it comes to discussing Hispanics and how they vote. What, what I was what I was struck by though in the piece. Um, is, is how so many of these uh, Hispanics in South Texas uh, remind me of um, like an older guard Republican Party, you know, yeah. that is more synonymous uh, with Liz Cheney or George Bush. I mean, George Bush was uh, arguably the most friendly immigration president in the last 40 years um, than they do have with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Getz of the party. So it, it is going to be interesting how and what they do to shape South Texas. But I, I certainly don't want to have what's happening in South Texas suddenly be a, you know, a, a, a generalization of what Hispanics and how Hispanics vote um, as a whole. Uh, meanwhile, Tamara, I haven't had a chance to absorb it yet, and I'm not sure that e either you uh, or Enable have had a chance to see it. Nate Cohn at the New York Times, their numbers cruncher, just put up a fascinating story. Uh, he looked at the first two sets of data coming out of the U.S. Census and said that what's fascinating to him is that the numbers reveal that Democrats are not likely to make the kind of gains they think they will in black and brown communities and Republicans may not do as badly as they're concerned they will. And the reason for this in the broadest terms, Nate says, is because uh, the population gains are in states like Florida that Trump uh, won. And in fact, that in even the Hispanic and, and African-American communities in some of these states, uh, it, it won't do Democrats a whole lot of good because the larger populations will continue to vote Republican. He also points out that while the states that Biden won 360, 306 electoral votes in 2020 is down to 303 in the new census, and so Democrats are going to continue losing in the electoral college. All of that was fascinating. Yeah, I haven't seen that story. But one thing that will be very interesting to me is especially when we're talking about Latinas who are gravitating toward the Republican Party in places like South Texas. You know, the, the New York Times piece we've been talking about kind of shows that the disconnect, you know, that these are Latinas running the party. 
um, down there. But at the same time, all the all the political figures that they're kind of holding up are all white men, people like John Cornyn, people like uh, Greg Abbott, the governor, people like Donald Trump. It'll be interesting to see how much the Republicans um, at the statewide level in places like Texas try and re recruit some of these Latinas to, to run for office. And I think that could be you know, the, the start of a big change, especially if, if little kids and, and people can see, oh, you can be a Latina who's running as a Republican who can win. I think that will be kind of the turning of, of the page in, um, in the South. And I'll be interested to see if they can kind of sustain that energy. Okay, this is a story that we will continue to follow because it's really a fascinating and important one. Tomorrow, I want to turn the page, and, and with a little time that we have left, talk about it. what I think is a very important story that you reported in the past week. Um, you essentially tell us that across the South, uh, bills that uh, seem designed as hot-button issues, as bills to divide uh, conservatives from liberals on transgender issues, we're passing in other legislatures. Georgia dodged a bullet this last session, but the transgender, the question of transgender, especially children, is still very much going to be alive in the legislature as we move into the next session. Yeah, something like 30 states this last year have considered bills to to restrict, um, you know, the transgender kids and kind of their support systems. Uh, most bills have, have had to do with the participation in youth sports, especially of transgender girls. It would require them to, to participate with the gender that aligns with their, their gender at birth, not their gender identity. And that's passed in, in a handful of states. Uh, a version of that was introduced in Georgia, advanced through committee in the Senate, but never made it onto the floor. And then there's also a, a bucket of other bills that would make it a crime for doctors to help kids under 18 transition genders. So if they prescribe things like hormones or puberty blockers, that could put them in jail. And again, a version of that was introduced in Georgia, but never made it through in committee. Um, this is kind of seen as one of the, the latest front lines on the culture war. It's a way to get uh, socially conservative Republicans riled up and ready to go ahead of the, the midterm elections. And it'll be interesting to see if in Georgia whether there can be renewed momentum next session as we kind of wind up for the, the party primaries. Um, we heard David Ralston on your show uh, about 10 days ago mentioned that at least on the sports front, it was not a fight that he seemed to want to engage in. Uh, but at the same time, I think if there is enough pressure from the base, that could really change attitudes among political leadership. So it'll, it's, it's really interesting to watch, and uh, especially as more state legislatures across the South take up those bills. Yeah, this issue's not going away. Renee? Yeah, I, I, I do think that um, it, it is, it, as, as Tamar said, it's part of a larger culture war, you know, that, that is being waged, um, that, that is, is seemingly waged to distract from other policies, you know, that move the country forward, like the infrastructure bill that Biden has. Like, you know, I, 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 I do think that it's a, it, it's such a wedge uh, issue in that it harkens to what Republicans talk about woke culture and what this woke slash cancel culture does uh, and is doing to the fabric of our of our society as Americans. Um, so I think, you know, I agree again with Tamar completely and that you're going to see this play out and it, it is going to rile up the base. Um, and of both parties, 
of both parties. Um, Renee, I I would think you just told us about the Hispanic voters who want their guns, who are strongly opposed to abortion issues that would give them, an, you know, make them move toward the right, perhaps, in their voting preferences. I, I, I assume a huge percentage of the Hispanic vote is Catholic, and I wonder how that the issue of transgendered youth plays in that community. Well, interestingly enough, so many of the recently arrived immigrants uh, from Central America primarily have, have really embraced evangelicalism, and that has altered the mindset of how they vote. Um, if, if you, what was interesting about the Times piece of, of Latinas, you know, picking up the mantle and, and, and engaging in South Texas is that they feel the Democratic Party has moved too far to the left. Um, when, when trans rights and issues are made front center in the debate, you can see a lot of evangelical El Salvadorans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, folks in South Texas just not even comprehend what that is and feel left out right. of that discourse, yeah. thereby yeah. shifting to the right. Okay, um, we're running out of time, but tomorrow you had another story that I think we have to at least mention. Uh, Governor Kemp apparently tomorrow is going to sign a bill that for the first time ever will give some 250,000 Georgia state employees paid parental leave. That's a breakthrough. Democrats say three weeks isn't long enough, but, it, it's, a, but it's a starting point. It's a progressive uh, move from Governor Kemp. At the same time, it's an issue where the politics have really shifted over the last five years. Donald Trump really embraced the issue at the urging of his daughter Ivanka, and I think that made it okay for Republicans to want to embrace the issue. Georgia has long been at the bottom of lists when it comes to family-friendly policies with a lot of these groups that rate those things, and I think a lot of people are excited to finally see this. Not only is this going to impact uh, state of Georgia employees, but also teachers, so this could be a huge yeah. deal to a lot of young families. All right. That's it. We are out of time for uh, today's show. Tamara Hallerman, thank you so much for being here. Renee Alegria, you as well. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation today and I'm grateful you were here. I hope you all enjoyed our uh, conversation on Political Rewind today. It's, I have to be tell you, while we were talking, I had my Facebook page open and something popped up, a five-year anniversary. It was a video of me in the studio at Political Rewind with three panelists, Jim Galloway, Greg Bluesteed, and Patricia Murphy. Tamara Hellerman, at that point, was still in Washington. But this is an example of how valuable our partnerships with people like Tamara have been from the very start of Political Rewind. They bring us their wisdom. I hope you are grateful for their participation in the show and will help support the work we do here at Political Rewind. Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, wear your mask above your nose, and uh, tell a friend to go get vaccinated. See you all tomorrow.